0: Hello, it's David here. The Leader brings you news, commentary and analysis every day at 4pm. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. And get in touch too. Use the hashtag The Leader podcast on social media. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland, the silent lobbyists that could block Boris's Brexit bill.
1: Now, with a majority of 80, you might think Boris Johnson has nothing to worry about in the Commons. But of course, that's not true because, as I always say, an 80-seat majority means 18 nervous MPs.
0: Our political editor, Joe Murphy, on the threats being faced by the PM. And...
2: Everyone who hasn't evacuated is ready to go at a moment's notice. People are going around their homes looking at their belongings and saying, "Okay, like, if we need to leave and our house is going to be gone when we get back, what few things are we going to take with us that we're going to have to leave everything else behind?
0: The devastation of the U.S. wildfires. We speak to Oregon's Vanessa Lamers on the destruction of her hometown. Taken from the Evening Standard editorial column, this is the leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, can Boris Johnson put down a Tory Brexit revolt?
3: This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the Axa Startup Angel Competition.
1: That's plushcare.com slash loss plushcare.com slash weight loss
0: Boris Johnson's being warned that silent loyalists in the House of Lords are preparing to block his bill that seeks to override the Brexit treaty he signed with the EU. Former Tory leader Lord Howards among those who appear to be rebelling against him as the EU itself threatens to call off talks unless it's withdrawn. As our editorial column points out, It's not the only trouble the Prime Minister is facing.
3: Boris Johnson is facing two significant revolts from within his own ranks. The first is over the government's new coronavirus restrictions and the failure to exempt the under-12s from the ban on social gatherings of more than six people. The second is on his decision to break international law in the internal market bill unveiled this week in preparation for Brexit. The Evening Standard has much sympathy with the government as it grapples with the challenge of trying to prevent a second wave of infections with the accompanying loss of life and economic harm. Yet the cause of the second rebellion is far less comprehensible. To start with, it's wrong in principle for the government to deliberately break the law. It's a tactical mistake, too, for several reasons. One is that it shattered the Tory unity over Brexit. It's shameful that this law-breaking idea ever surfaced. A swift reversal to scrap it is essential. Our
0: political editor, Joe Murphy, is with me. Joe, can this rebellion really stop the bill from passing? Well, there's two threats, David.
1: One's in the House of Commons and the other is in the House of Lords. Now, with a majority of 80, you might think Boris Johnson has nothing to worry about in the Commons. But, of course, that's not true because, I, as I always say, an 80-seat majority means 18 nervous MPs. On this occasion, the main amendment that's gone down so far from Bob Neal, the Bromley and Chislehurst MP, who's chairman of the Justice Committee, um, is there on the order paper, but some experts and the whips are telling this to MPs are saying yeah, it's flawed, it won't achieve what you want because it actually wouldn't stop the government from going ahead and doing its own thing and therefore it'll never be acceptable to the EU. The second threat is much more serious at the moment, though that could change round, is in the House of Lords, because you've now got a huge number of really serious Tory grandees saying, well, this is an unacceptable behaviour. You have William Hague, Michael Howard, two Tory leaders, saying that. In the Commons, you have Theresa May, but you also have Lord Lamont, like Lord Howard, a great Brexiteer who's uh, pretty hard line. They are both saying the government shouldn't do this. And what you've now got as well is what's described to me as the silent loyalists. The guys who just quietly go along with the votes most days and don't kick up on anything. But several of them are saying to their colleagues, no, we can't go along with this. So if there's going to be defeat, at the moment it looks like it'll be in the House of Lords most likely.
0: What about inside those talks themselves, Joe? Is it difficult? Is it getting hard? Are all the things the EU saying are problems actually problems? Well,
1: putting my ear to the door this afternoon, what I'm hearing is that those talks were more constructive than you might expect. So, it does seem possible that, for all the sound and fury outside and the sound bites to the cameras from Brussels and so on, that people are getting on with business but When you press for detail of, well, how how positive is this? Are we getting closer together on fishing, for example? And I'm told, no, we need a huge change on fish numbers and the EU are remotely realistic enough, to use the British jargon, about what an independent coastal state should be allowed to take from its own waters. And in other areas, I'm told it's positive because we're now having discussions about areas... Well, we've got weeks left before this whole process finishes and it seems that we're not looking at the text of deals here. We're looking at finally having discussions.
0: I was interested that Nancy Pelosi from the US last night was also criticising... What's going on? Is there a danger to the the UK's international reputation? Of
1: course there is, although practical politicians do point out that actually breaches of international treaties um, are something that happens on a regular basis and you'll find the government sources pulling out precedents involving all sorts of countries, including Germany. But realistically, what matters is the effect in other countries. And on Capitol Hill, there's a big contingent of representatives and senators who are sympathetic to Dublin and they are saying they'll block a trade deal and that is a practical consequence that uh, will, will will hurt this country's hopes of, um, of a more prosperous time across the Atlantic.
2: Next. You're going to have people who have no home, no place to go have lost their entire town, their whole way of living and everything that they've ever known and I just don't I don't know how you move on from that.
0: Oregon's Vanessa lamers on how wildfires are wrecking where she grew up. The skies above Oregon remain red as wildfires continue to ravage the state. it gets dark
2: and it just gets ridiculous.
0: Helicopters are dropping tens of thousands of tonnes of water on flames spreading in areas like Portland, the state's largest city. Half a million people have been evacuated. At least 10 have died, including a 12-year-old boy and his grandmother. It's not just the fire that's a threat. The air itself is becoming toxic. Doctors are warning people to take precautions, like Vanessa Lamers, who works for the US Public Health Foundation. She's now based in Maryland, but she's from Oregon, where her family are among those in danger, Vanessa. Looking at what's happening and seeing where you grew up on fire, that must be devastating for you.
2: Yes, uh, it is so hard to be three thousand miles away and be completely helpless in the face of my childhood burning to the ground. the The town of Mill City, where Santiam River is, which from my understanding has just been wiped off the face of the earth, was somewhere that holds extremely formative and special memories for me. I used to work for Willamette University, which is a small university in Salem, and they owned a cabin called Thetford Lodge that we used to be able to rent um, for really inexpensive. And it's right on Sandy M River, and it's believed the whole thing is just gone. You know nothing left, so it's it's so hard to be here and see that all happening, and and thinking about when I finally go back to see my family in Oregon. That all of these places that I wanted to take my son are now going to be just completely vanished.
0: That's like your entire history has just gone up in flames. Exactly.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that you know the town of Salem where I grew up and my family's houses, you know, are still going to be standing by the time I get back there after the pandemic. What's hugely disruptive and terrifying is the air quality. And, you know, as a public health person, I studied air quality for a long time. I know the health effects of air quality that's this bad. So that's very frightening for me being over here thinking about, um, you know, people having asthma attacks because of the air quality, thinking about Um, You know, young kids and older adults who don't have the best immune systems or the best lungs, people who have COVID-19 breathing this air. I'm sure you've seen the pictures, you know, the sky is red and we're seeing um, air particles that are basically completely unhealthy. People are being told not to go outside at all. Uh, My friend's mom said she went outside for five minutes and was like choking because the air was so thick and just disgusting um, that she just started coughing and ran back inside. I have a lot of family and friends who have evacuated. Everyone who hasn't evacuated is ready to go at a moment's notice. You know, they've put all their valuables together, pictures, paperwork. They've got their bags packed. They've got, you know, the car fueled. They've got their evacuation route. You know, this is the kind of thing people are going around their homes, looking at their belongings and saying, okay, like if we need to leave and our house is gonna be gone when we get back, what are we gonna, what few things are we gonna take with us that we're gonna have to leave everything else behind? So I think that just mentally and emotionally is so hard.
0: Is everybody you know safe?
2: Yes. We are very lucky we've had, unfortunately, a few people have died, but um, everyone that I know is safe. Only a few people in Oregon have died. Um, people have certainly lost everything, but, you know, they can start over. And we're, I'm, I'm lucky that all my family is safe. Some of my family is a little bit west of Salem, too. So I'm very lucky that my dad who is older, um, is pretty far away from all the fires and is doing a good job of staying inside and not breathing that toxic air because we know from research that can increase, you know, heart attacks and breathing problems and asthma attacks and everything like that. So I think I'm, I'm mostly worried about my older family members breathing in that air and having health effects from that.
0: But will people be able to start over as you said, when so much has been lost? It's going to be hard for those who have been evacuated to go home and see for themselves, and eventually you're going to see this for yourself, what's been left?
2: You know, there was a fire on Highway 22, uh, which is basically the part of Oregon that's been most affected by the Beachy Fire, when I was a kid. And I remember driving down the highway And just seeing out the window, this whole area of land that was just black, it was, you know, it had been burned to the crisp. And driving that road, you know, several times a year for years and seeing that devastation and every time driving past it, being so upset, it it was just so scary. It came so close to the houses. And I think maybe one person had died in that fire. And so now to think about my whole entire state, everybody that I know and love, affected by this. Now, it. I think it's even more difficult in the face of the pandemic. I think we're going to see a lot of really difficult mental health problems going forward. I think it's going to be really difficult for people who have lost everything, who have lost their home, who've lost their employer. You know, we've had a lot of businesses burned down. So you're going to have people who have no home, no place to go, have lost their entire town, their whole, their whole way of living and everything that they've ever known. And I just don't, I don't know how you move on from that. I know that I've seen some great inspiring things from California and, you know, parts where there have been really bad hurricanes in the U.S. where people have talked about losing everything, losing their whole town and how you kind of move on from that. So that that has been really inspiring to see those stories come through right now, because, you know, that's that's, I think, what people need to to wrap their head around. We also are lucky to have a 24 hour crisis counseling line that I had put out on Twitter yesterday. So that's run through the U.S. government so that people can call or text and talk to anyone that they need to talk to.
0: So the effects of this are going to go on for a really, really long time, aren't they?
2: Yes, there's a fire um, that happened about 17 years ago that I, I know of in Oregon that was, you know, it was in the woods, it was in the forest, it was nowhere near the cities like now. Uh, but it, it took years and years and years to recover that area at all. So I imagine it'll take years and years and years to recover this. Um, and we have to think about the future and resilience and with you know, the climate changing, with the temperatures warming, with the drier summers, we're gonna have to think about how to better manage this going forward. You know, if we're gonna rebuild the homes in some of these places, how do we rebuild it carefully and smartly? You know, how are we gonna better manage these forests so that we're not seeing this situation again? And I certainly don't, I don't have the answer to that because with climate change, we just don't know what the future is gonna hold here.
0: And that's the leader. You can keep up with all the latest developments with the Evening Standards live blog, which you'll find at standard.co.uk. This podcast is back on Monday at 4pm.